Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Tennis fans to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring International Tennis Hall of Famer, former world number one Mats Vilander, and Texas Longhorn all-time great, two-time All-American Johnny Levine. Your host of KickServeRadio.com is Andy Zoden. So take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will welcome everybody. It is the post-World Tennis Teachers Conference edition of KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And tonight, we are joined by the great Mats Vlander, seven-time Grand Slam singles champion, one-time Grand Slam doubles champion, former world number one and international tennis hall of famer. Johnny Levine's got the week off. He's doing a little traveling. So, Matt, you're stuck with me. I just got back from the World Tennis Teachers Conference in Orlando, Florida. I want to talk a little bit about the Labor Cup with you, the points race. They're getting ready to uh, make a final push to the Tour and Championships, both the ATP and the WTA side. Uh, first things first, how's things going in Sun Valley, Idaho? Well, Andy, pleasure to be with you. Uh, Sun Valley is getting cold uh, at night. Night, we're having about 35 to 40 degrees. It hasn't started freezing yet, but it's amazing how quickly it goes. But uh, the later uh, it goes, the better the golf courses are. So that's all good. So, yeah, um, no, just just hanging out after the aftermath of uh, being in Colorado with you last month and then the U.S. Open, uh, which was incredible, and just trying to dissect everything that happened at the U.S. Open with Coco Goff and obviously Novak Djokovic. Novak Djokovic appeared at the Ryder Cup uh, in golf. Ah, I saw he played in the All-Star Ryder Cup, and uh, they had a couple of interviews on the Golf Channel, actually, with him, and he said he had never, ever been that nervous in his life because there were thousands of people there. He's such a class act uh, in what he's doing, and it feels like the, the pressure and the weight is lifted off his shoulders because he's gone. He's run away from Federer and Nadal, and it's clear to everybody he's the best of all time, and he most probably will forever. So, yeah, things are good. But honestly, I've missed the World Tennis Conference, and I'm interested. First of all, you must be fit as a fiddle because you've been in Florida working out. What what's happening in in American tennis and uh, for the USPTA? What are, what are we concerned about, or what are we trying to? What message are they pushing through these days? Uh, a couple things. John Embry finishes off his illustrious 11-year career as a CEO of the USPTA. He is stepping down uh, at the end of the year. And I mean, it's a stressful job. There's no doubt about it. And in particular, it's been stressful these last couple of years because there has been some to, you know, not sugarcoat it, you know, some deterioration of the relationship between the USPTA and the USTA. And I think there are fences that need to be mended. And I think that that was part of what was discussed, um, you know, in, in a number of the different conferences and sort of offline conversations that people have with one another. So I think that there's 
a lot of effort being made towards some positive dialogue to make sure that those two associations don't stray too far from one another when the greater good of the sport of tennis is really what is at stake. And I'm sure that cooler, cooler and wiser heads will will prevail because I think ultimately they do want what's best for the game. So I think a lot of good things will will come from the uh, the situation that that has come, uh, call it in the post-COVID era. So that's number one. Uh, number two, which was one of the highlights of, of all of the conferences that I've been to, was to see Chris Everett being inducted into the USPTA Hall of Fame. And before her actual induction, she did a one-on-one with our, our dear friend Steve Flink, for an hour. And when you look at that career, Matt, I wanted to ask you, because when I was young growing up, um, of course, Chris Everett was a household name and, and, and she was synonymous with tennis greatness as, as was Borg in your country. But, but here in the United States, we also glommed onto Bjorn Borg as this, this godlike symbol. Did Chris Everett have a similar impact on the Swedish youth and with you and your development, because a lot of people would potentially compare you favorably to her by way of style and uh, emotional stability on the court, the ability to grind a player down. But when you look at the the numbers on the Chris Everett career, absolutely astounding. No, a hundred percent. When I got on tour, of course, she had already started winning a lot. Uh, um, so I think what we saw was exactly that, that, that she, we had sort of a Chris Everett attitude in a lot of Swedish players, very quiet. Of course, Bjorn Borg was the same, but I think for me, what stands out with Chris Everett is that she's really the trailblazer when it comes to, to winning, uh, winning majors, because uh, Billie Jean King, I believe she has 11, 12 in singles. Bjorn Borg has 11. Uh, Roy Emerson, uh, even though some of them are not in the open era, has 12. Of course, Margaret Court, 24. But most of them were not in the open era. She won the straight open like, I don't know, 10 times plus. Chris Everett was really the one that took it past everybody and then didn't stop but like ran away with it and I think she ended up on 18 slams funny enough Martina Navratilova ended up on 18 slams too so I mean how fitting is that so yeah she was massive obviously and and a big 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 star in Europe because she she was uh let's see if you can say can you even say this these days but but she was an attractive athlete no the way she looked she carried herself with a lot of class she was always well dressed on and off the court she was all well behaved she always said the right things uh and then you realize that yeah but what's underneath a fierce fierce competitor so yeah that is a, a very interesting when steve flink asked her about what did she feel was her greatest accomplishment were it that was it the majors was it you know she won a major every year for 13 consecutive years no one's close to that people can't see the look on your face that i see right now of just absolute bewilderment not even nova no one's done it no. and so 13 years in a row of winning so here, here's what's incredible she won 18 she only played 56 majors matt she didn't play a lot of australian opens she didn't. She, in fact, there were many years where she only played two majors because she made it more about the tour in its entirety. So she won 157 singles titles. Matt's in 56 majors. She made the semis or better 52 times. What? She lost before the semis four times. Let's see here. In 
Uh, let's see. She reached the semis or better. Uh, French Open record, 72 and 6. She won seven. That's the all time record. One more than Steffi Graf. Steffi Graf, excuse me. U.S. Open record, 101 and 12. She won it six times. That's an all time record that's tied with Serena. One more than Graf, two more than Navratilova. Her Wimbledon record, 96 and 15. She won it three times. Appeared in 10 finals. Oh, my goodness. That girl that couldn't play on grass. And in the Australian Open, she had a record of 30 and four. She won it twice, never played the Australian Open, and failed to make the final. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So when you when you look at these numbers, and, you, and, her, and her match record lifetime was 1,309 and 146. She landed smack dab on a winning percentage of 90%. You were not far behind in the mid-80s, but she is the highest winning percentage of any player of all time, male or female. Mm. Yeah, I, I, exactly. That's unbelievable. Those uh, numbers. <laughs> I didn't realize she was that good. But but um, the other thing I, I remember about her, she changed from her wooden racket, Wilson, to the midsize at some point. Of course, I did the same thing. She was the last one to do it. She switched to the pro staff finally, but she, she they, was they, she the last they, one. Okay. They talked about it and they just, yep. she, and it was kind of like Bill Scanlon when he switched and then he didn't like it. And then he went running home before he played the match against Marcos, Marcos Hosovar at Delray beach. And he'd been playing with the, the, whatever it was, the advantage or whatever the racket was. And he came back with his Jack Kramer and he won the golden set. Right. <laughs> but, but, but ever she held on to that, that little Chrissy Everett wood racket of hers. Uh, until the until the very bitter end, and really didn't switch to the pro staff until '83. Right, exactly. That's what I say. So '82 was the first year that I won a major. I, I changed rackets to a midsize in '81, uh, and I won uh, the French Open in '82, which is the first Grand Slam singles titles to be won by a racket that was oversized. It was seventeen okay. percent larger than the than the regular wooden racket or the T two thousand. You know any head, for example, or outer edge. So, but I remember. So I did that. But then I remember when she switched, and you could tell that there was a difference in her. She got a little more pop on the ball, uh-huh. and she was still able to control it. Um, the USPTA, Andy, is that the a similar thing to what the PGA of America on the golf side is? The PGA uh, instructors of America is that what the USPTA? Is to to and Amer- and, and this, this the lead up question to because I feel that a PGA pro instructor at a club has much more uh, weight behind them. They carry it with you. It's more uh, the credential of being a PGA pro seems to be more valuable than it is to be a USPTA pro, which I don't really understand. I always thought that tennis pros, you know, we we, we pick up the balls, we do a lot of lessons, uh, but PGA instructors, there's a different respect towards them compared to the USPTA American tennis pro. What's your, what's your take on that? And is there something that they're, they're trying to, um, trying to accomplish if you played on tour you should get a card blah 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 that you have some weight and and people believe you your voice carries a lot of experience i think that that's part of the problem Matt. is that the pga is the pga is the pga right so the pga is as much john rom and scotty scheffler 
and 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 Justin Thomas and Rory McIlroy and all these guys that you're seeing play in the Ryder Cup as it is the pros at Columbine Country Club and the Valley Club where you play. So they're PGA pros and they're PGA pros and they're PGA pros, right? Yeah. With tennis, you've got a bit of an alphabet soup type situation. You've got the ATP, which are the male pros. You've got the WTA, which are the female pros. Those are the people that you see on TV. This is kind of how we describe it. This is, you know, the elevator speech. And the ATP guys are the guys you might see on television. Uh, or if you went and watched, the, you know, paid money to go watch pro tennis, you might see an ATP player. Then you've got the USPTA, which are the lowly little, you know, plebes like myself that teach tennis, right? We're just the guys at the clubs that are trying to get you ready to play either local league tennis or just recreational tennis for fun, just to have something that's you know, recreational and a healthy lifestyle. Possibly we're helping you play at a higher level. We were, we're good with running programs and tournaments and events and leagues and pro shops and all those types of things. But to your point, if there's a, a, a disparity in the levels of respect between a PGA teaching pro and a USPTA teaching pro, it's because a PGA teaching pro and a PGA playing pro are still PGA pros. And I think that's ultimately, you've also got the PTR, which is another, uh, you know, tennis teaching body. And they're sort of, you know, to call it what it is, to some extent, rivals with one another. You've got, when you talk about the different ranking bodies, you've got the USTA, then you've got the ITF. And there's it's such an alphabet soup in tennis that I just don't think that there's just an intense amount of clarity to have everybody really understand who is what and who is who and who is responsible for what. And I'm not even sure that all of the pros in within all of this are necessarily totally sure of that either. So that's what the really, I think the biggest issue is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of tennis, Andy, quickly, what, what's, what are they thinking? Technique or attitude or because they must get a shot in the arm because American tennis is doing so great with so many male pros that are, that are great players. And of course with Coco Goff and we've had Sloan Stevens and Madison Keys and, and the list goes on on the women's side, but on the men's side, can you feel that energy? These days compared to, say, five to 10 years ago when you used to go to those things. I mean, is there a difference? Is there a confidence? Can you feel the I mean, it's so positive today, American tennis. I think American tennis and American tennis coaches always try to put on a very brave face. And I think that there is a lot of both real and artificial arrogance if you would and and pride at the same time i think they the line is a little blurred between those two but ultimately i think that if 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 i were to really sum it up i would say that that the coaches nowadays are a little frustrated and put off by the ease in which today's players are distracted distracted by social media distracted by technology distracted by their social lives and distracted by things that do not allow them to have the type of game face that Chris Everett had the type of commitment to the process that Mats Vlander and the Swedish players had back in the day. And that they're having a tough time relating to the players to try to press the right buttons, to try to crack the code 
for today's player because it seems like it's such a fluid and moving target. I think overall there's positivity and optimism, but there's definitely frustration by virtue of these 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 distractions and the way it's just really hard to capture a young player's attention for the amount of time that you would know that it's necessary to achieve that level of greatness. And and is it not then uh, nearly across the board? Because the tennis players, the amateurs back in clubs, they're watching TV, they're watching what the pros do. And then suddenly they don't have Chris Everett or Bjorn Borg to look at. They have they have more of the, and I love Francis Tiafo because he's so engaging. But at the same time, there's a little bit, uh, sometimes a little bit of lack of focus, it seems. But obviously, he's got he's so much better at that. But you do see that in in some of the pros. And um, yeah, no, that's very interesting. Very interesting. Well, you can make a lot of money by being entertaining. And and I'll, I'll, I'll before we go to break, just to, to put a, a point on how this has changed things. Chris Everett, for all she did, winning 157 singles titles, and oh by the way, 32 doubles titles, 18 majors, 90% of her matches. 52 of 56 times to the semis or better of majors won 8.8 million bucks, Matt's 8.8. I mean, she'd win that in six months. Sure. Yeah. At at the clip that she played now. And so these guys can go out. Ben Shelton goes out and semis the U S open and he's probably made 8.8 million by now with just having played years on tour. And so, you know, the priorities that have to have changed and for the better, for the worse yet to be seen. All right. When we come back, I want to talk about the Labor Cup because somebody made a suggestion that I like, and I want to get your take on it. So I'll run that by you next. It's a really cool suggestion. Uh, I'll be real curious to get your take. You're listening to KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. AZ and Matt's Lander, Johnny Levine, is on vacation this week. But you got Matt, so you got to be happy. We're back right after this. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. guys, Sarah Z here with a kick serve, quick serve with my friend and nutrition guru, Courtney Ward with Body Fuse. Courtney, as we ladies start to get, oh, shall I say more advanced or more experienced in our life? How about just body weight and body maintenance? That for me is becoming, I, I think, tougher by the day. Boy, you're not alone. And along with our sports performance line, Body Fuse also offers a full weight loss line. And we have an, a fantastic product called Purify, which kickstarts your weight loss. It's a GI detox. It's a water cut as well. So it's really great for bloating, irregularity, um, and people love it to kickstart a weight loss program. And then with that, we couple a product called Blackwall Shredded, kind of cool name. It's a daytime thermogenic um, and also has a nootropic in it. It's not super high stimulant, but it's just a, a good mental focus. And it just basically kickstarts your metabolic rate. So that's a daytime thermogenic. We also offer a nighttime thermogenic called Midnight Burn. And this has melatonin and GABA as well as a thermogenic. So it kind of continues that metabolic rate 
uh, bump, if you will. So the, these three products are, are sort of like the magic trinity. I don't want to say magic pills because there's no such thing, but midnight burn at night, black wall shredded in the day, uh, and then purify to kind of kickstart your system and clean out your GI tracts. And in addition, purify along with the detox, it allows us to start absorbing nutrients a little bit more efficiently as well. So those three products are just a fantastic trio and very, very popular. Fantastic. And one more time, Body Fuse. BodyFuseUSA.com. Well, I'm Sarah Z. She's Courtney with Body Fuse. And now back to more tennis talk with the Kickserve Radio Boys. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Great segment before talking about uh, the USPTA World Conference. Congratulations on a on a job well done. John Embry uh, going into retirement, well-deserved. Chris Everett going into the Hall of Fame, along with Kirk Anderson. And by the way, his speech was so moving and so touching, talking about his career and how he has unfortunately uh, been stricken with Parkinson's and um, – how that has affected him. And he, he took parts of the Jimmy V speech, uh, which, which was uh, in, incredibly touching. And also he, uh, he quoted Lou Gehrig. And so uh, wasn't a dry eye in the house for that one, but congratulations to Kirk Anderson on being uh, inducted into the USPTA hall of fame alongside Chris Everett. All right. When we left Matt's, we were saying we were going to talk about the labor cup and, and God bless John McEnroe for defending his title. They won it in London. They backed it up and and uh, defended in Vancouver, a convincing 13-2 win. And then I saw a suggestion made saying that, you know, it's been really cool watching Borg and McEnroe coach these teams all these years. And now the Labor Cup is a thing, and it's real. And hopefully it's here to stay because the players seem to buy in. The fans seem to buy in. But is it time for Roger Federer to step in for Bjorn Borg and Andy Roddick to step in for John McEnroe. What are your thoughts on the possibility of evolving to a Roger versus Andy kind of situation now taking the reins from Bjorn and John? Yeah, I mean, it's time very soon. But actually, uh, Jim Courier had a brilliant interview with Roger Federer on the court, okay. uh, I think, after the first night. And I saw the whole thing. Uh, and uh, Jim Courier is absolutely brilliant when it comes to interviewing people and asking the questions. Uh, he's, I mean, I say he's, he's, he's second to none when it comes to that, honestly, because he's got the experience and he's so uh, fluid in in his question. They're funny. They're serious. And Federer actually, they touched on that subject. And Federer said he's not ready. Okay. He's not ready yet to go. And then they had uh, Bjorn Borg had asked a question. So he was sitting there, and Francis Tiafo asked a question. Bjorn Borg, and that was via Zoom or via the phone. I don't know. And Borg actually asked him, "Isn't it time that you're going to kick me out or something of that nature?" to take the captain seat. And he said, nah, that's yours forever, Bjorn. You're my idol. And then he made, went serious and said, yeah, I'm not ready yet. So I think that's the next step. It's interesting to see what's going to happen now. 
because we need to get Carlos Alcaraz to play the Labour Cup. We must probably need uh, Novak Djokovic to play it one or two more times to to save the power that they had when they had. I mean, they had Nadal, Federer and Djokovic and Andy Murray in the same team one year. That's incredible. And we thought, oh, this is going to keep continuing. But this year, obviously, no Medvedev, no Tsitsipas as well. So I think that's most probably the most important part of Labour Cup is to not let it go too many years without having the number one in the world and the number two in the world uh, because they are most probably going to be from America or from Europe. So uh, I think that's the most important part of the Labour Cup. What about you? I mean, it was always, you know, kind of like, okay, I'm watching, uh, I'm watching uh, uh, your boy uh, um, who's been coaching alongside Borg all these years. Thomas Enqvist. Thomas Enqvist, you know, I know his brother, Toby. And Thomas Enqvist, a great player in his own right and, and no slouch, but, and I asked you this before, but would you ever have any desire to be a part of that European team? I mean, yes, obviously that would be fantastic, but I also realized my place, uh, my place in the world of professional tennis uh, since my retirement, which is in TV, uh, which is, a role that has a lot of opinions, uh, always trying to be honest, of course, but you have opinions. Uh, and I think that Ivan Lendl would be the obvious, the obvious coach uh, or the captain uh, next uh, if Federer doesn't want to, because Lendl obviously is a brilliant coach. But uh, yeah, I mean, it would be fun. But no, not expecting it. I think that the, the, the way is to me, it's Ivan Lendl. If it's not him, it's Stefan Edberg, for sure, as a European. Um, and then, of course, it's uh, it's Roger Federer. I will say this just to push back on your uh, endless levels of self-deprecation and, and, and levels of humility that show up on this show every single couple of weeks. And that is to say that if being on TV and having opinions is a disqualifier, then what the hell is John McEnroe doing out there coaching <laughs> that team? Because if anybody's got something to say and shoot straight and tell you what he really thinks – and is on TV talking about these players. It certainly is John McEnroe. So I would sort of equate the two of you with regard to your roles in the sport of tennis uh, along those lines. Um, so I, I think that I think you're more you've got more international appeal than you give yourself credit for. And I think if you showed up on that sideline, people would nod their head in approval going, that is really cool to see Matt's on that sideline with those guys. That's just me. But uh, I have a feeling it's not just me. All right. When we come back, I want to talk about what is going on nowadays. Now, the Labor Cup exhibition, maybe, maybe not. Uh, Davis Cup, definitely not an exhibition. But how much buy-in is there? Yeah, we're really not sure. What we're going to talk about is the race to Turin and the Turin Championships on both the men's and ladies' side because there's nothing funny about those. That's all serious. That's all business. The number one ranking on the line. I'm going to get Matt's opinions on some of that when we come back on kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Hey guys, AZ here with Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and I am joined by Diadem Business Development Manager Doug Mouch. And Doug, let's face it, pickleball right now is all of the rage. However, it hasn't been exactly a seamless transition of bringing pickleball in with some of the the tennis clubs and one of the pain points has been the sound of pickleball and diadem has really 
taken the bull by the horns with regard to some new technology that you guys have out that I think all pickleball players, tennis players, or people that have a concern about the sound of pickleball are going to be very excited. Tell us about it. This past November, we launched the Vice Paddle, and we knew it wouldn't be conforming to USAPA rules because it has the EVA foam in it. That EVA foam causes the paddle to have a little more of a trampoline effect, but our theory was it's going to help tennis elbow or pickleball elbow, help wrist issues. It will help people that need a little more power that don't have it. But the biggest factor that we have found that's helped many country clubs and communities is the noise factor. So this EVA foam device paddle, it really does not make any noise whatsoever. Just It's a very solid noise, more of a tennis racket. So it kind of mutes that plastic wiffle ball noise to almost zero. So it gives you a little more power, in, in some cases a lot more. It's arm-friendly. It's audio-friendly. Where can people go online to find out more about Diadem's wide array of pickleball equipment and tennis equipment? Well, our website is diademsports.com. The paddle is the Diadem Vice. Go online, check it out. I'm Andy Zoden. Doug, thank you so much. We appreciate it, and good luck with all you guys are doing. Thank you, Andy. Really appreciate your time. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Final segment, AZ and Matt's with you today. Johnny Levine, a much-deserved vacation. He works very, very hard. He'll he'll be with us again soon. Matt's, let's talk about this race to Turin and the number one ranking. And I, I think a lot of people hoped and expected that after their meeting at the French Open, after their epic Wimbledon final, after their epic Cincinnati final, that we would again see Novak Djokovic and Carlos Alcaraz lock horns in New York for a U.S. Open final for the ages. We didn't get it. Then Neil Medvedev upset that party with a brilliant semifinal performance, and then ultimately Novak Djokovic would win his 24th. He's got an enormous lead in the point standings. He's at 11,795 points, outdistancing Carlos Alcaraz by over 3,200 points to Neil Medvedev in third. Holger Runa, injuries and a tough summer be damned. He's still sitting in the fourth spot, but they're so far behind then. Stefano Tsitsipas, Andre Rublev, your boy Yannick Sinner, Taylor Fritz, the first American to check in at number eight, Casper Ruud at nine, and Sasha Zverev has moved back up from that blown-out ankle in the French Open Semi of 2022. He's back to number 10 in the world, Francis TFO at 11, and Tommy Paul also right up there at 13, right below Alex Dimonar. So as we move toward Turin, it is clearly a two-horse race, how important is it compared to the majors for these guys to finish the year number one in the world? 
I think it's extremely important, honestly. Uh, and I, I haven't always thought that. When, when I hear Novak Djokovic talk about it, uh, and he even did it on the Golf Channel here at, at right. Ryder Cup. He inter- they interviewed him and he said, yeah, I was always interested in Grand Slam victories and being number one in the world. That was my big goal. So I think that uh, it's become... Um, most probably become more important to be number one in the world than it used to be, uh, or more important to stay there than it used to be for some reason, or we just didn't think we could do it. Um, and obviously, John McEnroe has been number one for for quite a few years as well. Connors was there, Bjorn Borg was there, but nothing like a Novak Djokovic or a Federer in terms of in terms of week. Pete Sampras obviously is up there as well. But so I think number one is brilliant. Then this part of the year after the U.S. Open. It's always been sort of a downer to me as a player and now uh, as a fan for a while where U.S. Open is done. Is that it? Is the year over? And then you realize, no, there's this mad race to get to uh, the ATP finals and the WTA finals. I don't remember us being ever involved in a race Right. Um, I never tried to get to the Masters. It was called the Masters in our day. Right. But I qualified, I don't know, six, seven years maybe. Um, and it wasn't a mad race. And I ne- we never talked about the race to get to New York. But they've done an excellent job in promoting that um, uh, through the ATP and whatever. And um, it's a massive, massive tournament that if, you, if you're ever going to talk about a fifth major, that clearly – is the fifth major to me because the quality of the field, uh, the number of matches played in a very short time. You can say that Indian Wells is the sixth major, but there's no way you can you can uh, you can jump over uh, or leapfrog the ATP Finals for another tournament. That needs to be mentioned before Indian Wells, Miami, Monte Carlo, Rome. To me. To me, as a player, and what you had to do to to win, which I didn't, but to get to the finals, I think it's it's really important that the ATP finals is talked about pretty much in the same way as the Grand Slam, uh, and because it has such weight on who ends up being number one in the world, which is back to your question, massively important for these guys to be number one in the world. Is it the only tournament, Matt, where this just tells you where my mind is as a tennis fan, because I don't recall watching any other tournaments and I've never gone to the ATP finals, be it at O2 arena or now uh, in Turin, wherever uh, Shanghai, wherever it's been in the past where they literally turn out all the lights in the place, except for the court. It's like, you're, when you go to the U.S. Open, the lights are on, in the play, but it's like going to a, like a Broadway play, and these players have got to feel like they're on a stage, which has to have a slightly different feel to it because you're not seeing the crowd, you're feeling the crowd, and you're hearing the crowd. Does that make a difference in firing these guys up? Absolutely, it does. I actually went to the O2 Arena. Okay. Three years, uh, I was there when Andy Murray became number one in the world, beating Novak Djokovic in the finals. I was there for that. I was there for when Grigor Dimitrov won it as well. Right. I was there when Sasha Zverev beat all of them, basically. Um, uh, Tsitsipas won it one year too, right? I mean, didn't... Tsitsipas won it. I wasn't there then. So I've been there. It is a very, very different feel from a Grand Slam uh, tournament because of the environment and I mean switching the lights turning the lights out on the crowd I don't know who came up with that but that really should be thought of when you have a U.S. Open evening session uh, or an Australian Open because it's so different and it doesn't really matter for the fans except 
the lighting is too bad to to shoot anyone with a camera to put them on the big screen at the US Open. And if the lighting is bad, you're not going to see who it is. And that's such a big part of the US Open is the, is the big video screen and people uh, hollering and dancing or kissing or... or uh, or protesting in the case of the Coco golf match. I mean, we could do without some of that stuff too. So we could darken those people out. That would be one of the upsides of darkening out those people. You wouldn't have protesters that could make any kind of a point and disrupt a match. Okay. You talk about the importance of this being number one. And I've, I've asked you this before in different ways, but, but not necessarily in the way that I'm going to ask you now, because you know, you win the U S open and you assume, okay, in the case of Novak Djokovic, okay, that's it. He's number one in the world. That's it for 2023, but it's not. But when you did it in 88 and you beat Lendl and you finished off a year where you won three of the four majors and it was undisputed, you were one in the world and it wouldn't have matter what had happened between the U.S. Open final and anything that could have potentially happened between then and December 31st, you were number one in the effing world after that performance. When you woke up, call it a day or two later, and you just got up and you just we're just the normal guy getting up and going in to take a shower in the morning. And you stood over your sink and you looked in the mirror as the number one player in the world. What went through your mind? Well, first of all, um, it was definitely after a couple of days because I didn't sleep at all. after I, <laughs> I figured so. It's, it's yeah. in New York City and there was a massive party and I did Good Morning America, did David Letterman Monday night. So there wasn't much sleep. Uh, yeah, I mean, a sense of accomplishment was amazing. I never really, though, had enough time at number one, and I didn't win anything as the number one in the world to really feel like to be Novak Djokovic, where you're you're winning everything, and you, you are number one, and you feel like number one, and I think that was the difference. I felt like number one while I had that year, but not at all after. When I went to the Australian Open in, in uh, 89, and I was seeded one, uh, which is the only time I was seeded one in the Grand Slam, um, which obviously was a, was a huge honor. I didn't feel like number one in the world at all. I had dropped off, so I can't really answer that. And then on the women's tour, let's just make sure we, we mention, as we as we finish this year going into their tour championships, we start the year with Arena Sabalenka winning her first major and really validating so much of what our expectations were of her for so long and that sense of relief when she finally, she got, it felt like she got her, the monkey off of all of our backs when she won that Australian Open. And then we see Svantec sort of retake the sport back by the throat again, but then it ends the year. And then we see kind of a, you know, a one-off with Marketa Vondrosova winning at Wimbledon, just another left-handed Czechoslovakian player doing that. So what's new, but then Coco Goff breaking through and winning that U S open. So as we go down the stretch in the women's game, who's the story of 2023? Is it Coco? Uh, well, first of all, um, I would want to correct you. It's a Czech Republic these days. So Excuse it's me. actually a smaller country okay. than when Hanna Manlikova and Martina Navratilova won it. Because obviously they what separated. About, what about Petra? Because I was thinking she Czech, was from the Czech, Czech lefties. Republic. Okay. Yeah, too. But <laughs> so I don't know. The only Slovaks really that I know is Miroslav Mechir. Uh, and there's obviously some, some uh, pros that, that I don't, I, not on top of my head. But it's a smaller country and they're still producing yeah. these unbelievable. Players. So uh, Martina Navratilova, I mean, how do you have Petra Kvitova left-handed, wins Wimbledon. Marketa Vondrasova left-handed, wins Wimbledon. Yeah, why? Because Martina Navratilova uh, is from there, and, and I think she set the tone. 
Um, I love that Arena Sabalenka became number one in the world because I think uh, there's no risk in Iga Swantek. Sometimes I feel if you're if you have a player that's number one in the world and they get kicked off the top of the mountain, just like what happened to me, I bring myself up again. Sorry, people. Okay. Is I got kicked off the top of the mountain and I never returned. I don't even know if I was interested in returning. I tried for a couple of years, but it was so unachievable. I think Arena Sabalenka becoming number one number one in the world is first of all, it's huge for her. It's it's good for our sport. And I say that because I'm not worried about Iga Schwantek, uh wanting to achieve that number one ranking in the world again. Whereas, for example, me, I take, put myself back in a conversation. I became number one in the world and I wasn't ever close to retaining that title. I was interested for a year or two, but then realized it's not achievable. When Pete Sampras comes behind you in your, in your shadows and Andre Agassi, you realize very quickly that, oh, uh, I think that train has left the station. Ain't going to happen to me uh, again. <laughs> Ivan Lendl somehow managed to do that and, and retain number one, I believe, for, for a few times. Iga Schwantik is the perfect uh, a player with a perfect attitude where being kicked down to two and maybe three at some point is going to fuel her fire and she's going to keep fighting to be the best player that she can be, which most probably puts her at the top of the mountain one more time. So I think it just elevates the women's game so much to have someone overtake Iga Schwantek, which we thought was not possible. She was dominating too much. So Sabalenka, uh, all credit to her, all credit to Elena Rybakina last year winning Wimbledon because they're pushing Iga Schwantek to the point where now one overtook him. Now that means that Coco Goff, we are going to see a player in Coco Goff that I'm not sure I would have expected to see. We already saw it. But she's going to want to be number one in the world. She's going to want to win more majors. And it's possible she will, but she has to beat some seriously good players with some seriously big games in Iga Schwantek uh, and Arena Sabalenka and Alina Rybakina. And of course, there's Uncia Burr. But I mean, the, it's massive, I think, uh, to have these two at the top because I have to separate the two of them from Rybakina a little bit, because she seems to come up with a few injuries here and there. She's not as consistent as them. So I think for Coco Goff, this is the best best case scenario. She knows what she has to do. She knows how much she has to improve to keep winning and be number one in the world. And that's, I think, what everybody wants to see is Coco Goff ascend to the number one in the world. And not necessarily because we're in America uh, and she's American, but just because how, of how important it would be for our sport uh, to to not only have an African-American become number one in the world again, but just her demeanor and her attitude. I think she'd be an absolute brilliant number one. And now we'll have that number one that Jimmy Arias famously pointed out that Iga Swantek, she would have done more for the sport if she wasn't wearing the cap, meaning <laughs> if we could see more right. of her facial expressions. Yeah. And I, I know exactly where Jimmy is coming from. And I agree in a way, but that doesn't take away anything from what Iga Swantek has done or who she is uh, for sure. That's not what, what Jimmy is trying to say. And it's not what I'm trying to get untangled in right now. It's more that <laughs> off with what she says, uh, and the way she looks, uh, and you can see her expression, and you can see she burns for this. I think she would be a very, very natural 
future number one and a multiple Grand Slam winner, which is why I think it'd be great for the sport to have a Coco Golf ascend to that title at some point. Well, I will tell you this, of all of the clothing companies out there right now, New Balance is sitting pretty with her, the way they the way they present her on the court, very athletic, very fierce, always uh, looking great, you know the way you do the way you describe Chris Everett. I mean, that is Coco Golf. I mean, yeah. she walks out there, she's always styling and looking good and looking athletic and looking fierce, and uh, probably doesn't have Tommy Paul standing next to her, uh, you know, representing the men's side of things because they're not only representing American tennis beautifully, they're representing New Balance beautifully, and uh, they are both great for our sport. All right, great stuff, Matt. As always, I look forward to seeing you, and um, we will be attending the annual program which benefits the Watson Children's Shelter in Missoula, Montana that Scott Potter puts on. And we've had the good fortune of of hanging out with the Jensen brothers and Robert Kendrick and and uh, Jesse Witten and Brenda Schultz-McCarthy and those types of folks. So it's always a great time. Scott, put, Scott Potter puts on a great show in Missoula and I look forward to seeing you there next week and look forward to seeing all you guys out on the courts. Thanks for checking in with us. On kickserveradio.com, for Matt's Vlander, I'm Andy Zoden. Johnny Levine will be back with us next time. Hopefully you will too. On kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network.